It might say 5 p.m. on your watches. It might say 5 p.m. on the clock on your phone, but it's not 5 p.m. It's Dame time, and it's time for Tabs Takes on WERW. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, I'm your host, Ryan Tab. If you didn't see Damian Lillard shot last night, I'm sorry for you. Damian Lillard hit what might have been a top five, top three shot of the decade. Might rank higher than you think. We're going to get into where that shot ranks all time, along with some NFL draft talk and more, as always. We've got a big show ahead. But that shot from Damian Lillard last night was legitimately one of the greatest shots I've ever seen. When you take into account what was on the line, the degree of difficulty, the context, everything that goes into making a shot memorable and historic, legendary, if you will, it had it all. It really did have it all. And so I went ahead because I saw that shot and I said, you know what, this might be one of the greatest shots in the history of basketball. I wanted to see where it really fits in, in the last decade, right? Because different eras of basketball, different stakes, and it's realistically hard for me, someone who's 22, to totally understand what was on the line in the 90s when I was a child. But the past decade, I can certainly do. So in order to really rank the top five or so shots of a decade or really see where this one fits in, you have to come out, you have to come up with a... uh, an outline, a scoring system, some way to qualify which shots are better than the others. Otherwise, it's just your gut, which isn't irrelevant, but it certainly doesn't tell the full story. It doesn't paint the full picture. So what does it take to make a great or legendary shot? What goes into classifying it in those categories and how high it ranks? So the first thing I think is very relevant when you're addressing the status of a shot is the stakes. What was on the line? So for that, postseason shots inherently just get a bump up. Because a regular season shot, unless the context for it is the final game of the season, if you win, you go to the playoffs. If you lose, you don't. Other than that situation, it's hard to imagine a shot in the regular season carrying the same weight it does in the postseason. So for stakes, postseason shots inherently get a bump up. Second is degree of difficulty. How hard was the shot? Pretty self-explanatory. A wide-open layup, regardless of the time and the situation, is not nearly as impressive as a fadeaway three. That's just the way it is. Degree of difficulty matters. And then third, and I think most overlooked, is the consequences of missing. Sometimes the stakes are high, and it's a difficult shot, but we forget what would have happened had the player missed. Is your team down? Would you lose if you miss? Is it a tie game? Do you have the lead? Was there a minute left? Would there have been opportunities should you miss to recover from that miss? That matters a lot. So given all that, I rank Damian Lillard's game-winning shot last night. And just to paint a picture of what happened, there's 30 seconds left on the clock. The Thunder have the basketball. Damian Lillard, Lillard had just hit a very clutch reverse layup off the window through traffic. An incredible shot just to tie the game. At that point, he has 47 points. Russell Westbrook goes down the other way, into traffic. I believe he got fouled. The foul was uncalled. As far as history is concerned, he did not get fouled. Bottom line is he missed the layup. 
although it was close. Blazers end up with the basketball. 3-1 series lead. Clock is winding down. Lillard walks the ball up the court and stands 35 feet from the basket with Paul George guarding him as he lets the clock tick down further and further and further. And eventually it gets to two seconds and you're realizing, well, he's not going to drive. This must be where he's shooting from. He sidesteps to his right, pulls up from three. Bang. Game. Series. It's over. Blazers advance. So I rank that shot the fourth most clutch, impressive, legendary shot of the last decade. The last decade of basketball. That shot ranks fourth. Number one? Well, we'll work backwards, actually. It's a little more fun not to hear number one, although I'm sure you can guess what it is. I'm not going to give it away. We're going to work backwards. So we're going to go... Excuse me while I fumble around my list. We're going to go... To number four, Damian Lillard last night. And if we break it down out of 30 points, stakes are worth 10, degree of difficulty worth 10, consequences of missing worth 10. When the shot's finally released, 1.6 seconds left on the clock. Game five of the first round, tie game at 115, Blazers lead 3-1. The stakes, I'm giving him a six out of 10. It's game five of the first round of the playoffs, you lead 3-1. The stakes are high, it's the postseason, these games matter, but realistically, The series isn't on the line on this one shot. Your season isn't on the line in this one shot. And you'll see as it compares to the other ones on this list, 6 out of 10 is about where this fits in, given those circumstances. 2. Degree of difficulty. I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. This is one of the most difficult clutch shots I've ever witnessed as a viewer of basketball. 10 out of 10, easily. It's a sidestepping 3 over an all-NBA defender, Paul George, who's 6'9", from 37 feet out behind behind the basket, outside of the basket, behind the three-point line. You're 37 feet out. It's a sidestep three over 6'9", Paul George. I realistically can't think of a more difficult shot that wouldn't qualify for the Harlem Globetrotters. Right? Anything else that you could make more difficult just wouldn't fit in in a game of basketball. Yeah, he could do it one-handed behind his back, under his left leg, while doing a spin-around 360, But that would never happen in a game. There's no context where that's beneficial. This is the most difficult shot I can possibly imagine where everything he did was necessary to get the shot off and therefore relevant to this game. So 6 out of 10 for stakes. 10 out of 10 for degree of difficulty. Then you have consequences of missing. It's a 6 out of 10 on consequences of missing. Right, it's a tie game at 115. So let's say Lillard misses the shot as the clock expires as it did when he made it. You go to overtime. You can still win it there. Your team's been playing better down the stretch than the Thunder have, even though the Thunder had a lead early in the game. And even if you lose the game in overtime, you still have a 3-2 lead in a series where you have realistically little to no worry about blowing a 3-1 lead. Yes, it's happened recently. But if you go back historically, it's happened 11 times in NBA history that a team has blown a 3-1 lead in a seven-game series. And it's happened five times since the turn of the millennium. So five times since 2000, 11 times in NBA history. Realistically, as exciting, as fun, as meaningful as this shot was, should Damian Lillard have missed the shot, the consequences would have been minor. Six out of ten on stakes, 10 out of 10 on degree of difficulty, 6 out of 10 on consequences of missing. Out of 30, we give it a 22 out of 30. Which doesn't sound that high, but it's, in my eyes, the fourth most of all time. The fourth highest of all time. Or, sorry, excuse me, of the last decade. 
Number three. Surprise, surprise, this one belongs to Damian Lillard. Game six of the first round against the Rockets in 2014. There are .9 seconds left remaining in game six. Rockets are up 98-96. Blazers lead the series 3-2. Blazers are the five seed. The Rockets are the four seed. So the stakes in this one, eight out of ten. It's game six in the first round of the playoffs. It's not game five. And as we get forward, because this does overlap a little bit with consequences, stakes and consequences, there is some overlap. But the most important thing to distinguish is you can still have high stakes without high consequences, although in some circumstances they overlap like this. So stakes, 8 out of 10. It's game 6 of the first round of the playoffs. You have a chance to win the series. Degree of difficulty, 9 out of 10. Very difficult shot, albeit a little less difficult than his one last night. Lillard comes off a screen. It's an inbounds with 0.9 seconds left. He comes off a screen in a full sprint to the, to the far side of the court. He's running right. Catch and shoot, turn around, fading three from 25 feet or so. Over the contest, the outstretched hand of six foot ten Chandler Parsons. Now, Parsons isn't an all-NBA defender, but you're being chased by a guy who's 6'10", that matters. 6'9", last night for Paul George. These are big guys compared to Damian Lillard. That stuff matters. And then you realize, right, he's in a full sprint. He has to set his feet, and he doesn't have time to put the ball down or try and make a move. This is just catch and shoot, fading for the series. Consequences, 8 out of 10. So why is this one higher in consequences than the last one? This is 8 out of 10. His shot last night, 6 out of 10. Well, because if Damian Lillard misses this shot, he loses the game, right? The Rockets have a lead, and they don't just have a one-point lead. He couldn't have gone for two. They have a two-point lead. This is three or bust territory. You could go two for the tie, but that's about it. And with 0.9 seconds left, your best look is from three. So if he misses this shot, where the clock expired when the ball was in the air, they lose the game, the series is tied, oh, and because they're the lower seed, they have to go back to Houston for game seven. In that right, this one is eight out of ten on consequences of missing. Now that's where the overlap with the stakes come, in, come into play. The stakes are not just that it was game six. It's game six. You have a lead, but you're the lower seed. That matters. Final score, 25 out of 30. So last night's shot, 22 out of 30. 2014's Damian Lillard game winner, series winner over the Rockets, 25 out of 30. The second most clutch, legendary, impressive, whatever word you want to give to it, clutch is a factor. It's not necessarily the most clutch shot because we're taking into account degree of difficulty and all that. Right, clutch really would just come down to stakes and consequences of missing. But when we factor in that degree of difficulty, you're kind of talking about just how impressive it is, whether it's going to blow you away, not just the meaningfulness of the shot. So, number two in the past decade. Ray Allen saving the Miami Heat in Game 6 of the NBA Finals. 2013 Finals, Game 6. San Antonio leads the series 3-2. We're in Miami. The Heat trail 95-92, again, a three-point deficit, a deficit again in this case. For Damian Lillard in 2014, it was a two-point deficit. In this case, a three-point deficit. That matters when you're comparing it to last night's shot in a tie game. Spurs lead the Series 3-2. As I said, the Heat would go on after this game to win their second straight finals. Stakes, 9 out of 10. It's Game 6 of the NBA Finals. Your back is against the wall. If you miss, you go home. That's it. Series over. Season over. Spurs win the Larry O'Brien Trophy. That's it. The difference is if you make it, 
you still have to win game seven. So that's where you get that discrepancy. It's not a 10 out of 10. It's a 9 out of 10. Because this doesn't win the finals. It just stops you from losing the finals. And it wasn't a game winner. It was a game tire. The shot doesn't win the series. It just stops you from losing the series. In fact, it doesn't even win the game because you're down three. So it's nine out of 10 on stakes. Degree of difficulty, eight out of 10. This is a very difficult shot. It's a backpedaling corner three off of a pass from an offensive rebound. It's chaotic. Tony Parker, who's only 6'2", but still, is right in your face. Actually, in the space you should be allowed to land. I think in today's NBA, this would have been called a foul. Maybe not given the context of the shot, right late game in the finals. Refs tend to swallow their whistles, but in the regular season, in the last two years or so, I think this is called a foul. So it's probably an and one. Could win the game. With Ray Allen at the stripe, probably does win the game. You have no time to look down and check your feet, and you hit from 24 feet out. Corner three. 5.2 seconds left on the clock. Difficulty, 8 out of 10. Stakes, 9 out of 10. Consequences of missing. 9 out of 10. There's a 99.9% chance your season ends if you miss that shot. Right, the rebound has to come down. So 5.2 probably turns into, by the time anyone maintains possession of it, 4 seconds. The Spurs are up 3, so you're down 3 if you're the Heat with 4 seconds left. You'd have to foul, have them miss both, and then hit a 3 just to extend the game. Almost a surefire end of your season. 9 out of 10. Why? Because it's not a surefire end of your season. 10 has to be reserved for the only the most certain of circumstances. Is that the most impressive look I can think of? Is that the most consequential situation I can think of? And because I can imagine a more consequential situation, like the buzzer going off when the, when the ball's in the air, I have to give it that 9 out of 10 instead of 10. Because if you took Lillard's shot last night and put it in the context of Ray Allen's shot, well, then the consequences of missing are 10 out of 10. Because there's zero chance, if the clock expires, that you can do anything to recover from that miss. In this case, they would have needed a lot of luck on their side. It's beyond unlikely. But there were at least some situations we could foresee in which they could return from missing that shot and still go on to win the game. 9 out of 10. So 9 out of 10 for stakes, 8 out of 10 for degree of difficulty, 9 out of 10 for consequences of missing. Final score, 26 out of 30. And then finally, the most impressive shot, the shot of the decade. Kyrie Irving's go-ahead three-pointer, Game 7 of the 2016 NBA Finals. 53 seconds left on the clock in the deciding game of that NBA season. The game is tied at 89. Points were at a premium. LeBron would actually, after the shot, go on to make the block, which I consider to be the single greatest play of all time. The single greatest play in the history of basketball. You find me a play that meant more to a team, a franchise, a city, a player, and basketball in that time period that could possibly stand up to the block? I don't believe you. I don't believe there is one. I'd love to see one, but I don't believe it exists. The block is the single greatest play in the history of basketball. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about clutch shots. So let's break down that Kyrie shot. The stakes, 10 out of 10, obviously. Game 7 of the NBA Finals, game is on the line. That's it. Can you think of a more 
higher stakes situation. Can you think of a higher stakes situation in the NBA than late game NBA finals? There isn't one. Late game seven NBA finals. That's it. That is the pinnacle. This game is the deciding factor of the whole season. Every single team, every single bucket, every single crossover, every single steal, block, rebound, it all leads to this game. This game decides it all. That's as high as the stakes can get. 10 out of 10, easily. Degree of difficulty, 8 out of 10. Irving goes between the legs, hits Steph with a hesitation, then sidesteps to his right. It's a fading three from 25 feet out over 6'3", Steph Curry. Steph Curry's not a great defender. He's a, he's a slightly above average defender at this point in his career. Maybe in 2016, he was just about average. He's 6'3", but we know he's a little shorter than that. You got to factor that stuff in. And quite frankly, the shot that Dame took last night, minus the move between the legs, is the exact same shot just from 12 feet further out. So from a degree of difficulty standpoint, I can't give Kyrie all that much credit here, at least in the context of the top shots of all time. Now, given the context of just every shot that's been taken, sure, it's a very high degree of difficulty, but compared to the other ones we're talking about, 8 out of 10 seems to be the right fit. And then the consequences of missing the shot, 9 out of 10. This is a critical shot at a critical juncture in the game, but it's not the end-all be-all. Right? It's a tie game. It's tied at 89, so I did mention that earlier. Whether you're trailing has a huge impact. Tie game, there's still nearly a minute left. It's 53 seconds. You've got just about a minute left on the clock. Oh, and by the way, LeBron James is on your roster. But you miss it, and you do give one of the top offenses, if not the top offense in NBA history, a chance to turn around and hit a go-ahead shot the other way with less than 53 seconds left on the clock. Right, if Kyrie misses that shot, essentially Steph Curry gets a chance to hit the go-ahead bucket in Game 7 of the NBA Finals with what would have been closer to 40 seconds left on the clock, 35 seconds left in the game. And it's Game 7, so if you miss, there's no opportunity to make up for it next game. That's the difference between a Game 7 and a Game 6 or Game 5 in regards to this list. Those are the consequences. Can you make up for it, or are the consequences certain? In this case, they're certain. So 10 out of 10 for stakes, 8 out of 10 for degree of difficulty, 9 out of 10 for consequences of missing, final score 27 out of 30. So the most elite shot of the last decade in the NBA is a 27 out of 30 on our scale. Essentially, the only thing you could have done to get a 30 out of 30 would have been the stakes of Kyrie's Game 7 shot, the degree of difficulty of last night's shot from Damian Willard, and you'd have to do it with the same amount of time left on the clock as Damian Lillard last night, but in the same Game 7 as Kyrie Irving. Those are the three scores that hit 10 out of 10 in a category. 37-foot sidestep right three over Paul George in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at the buzzer. That's about it. But boy, wouldn't that be something to see? Oh, I would love to see that. Could you imagine what it would be like to witness it? Because last night, I mentioned this, you're watching Lillard work the ball and just dribble and hold and dribble and hold 37 feet from the basket. And usually when a player is doing that, first of all, they're maybe 30 feet from the basket. Clock gets to 
eight, seven seconds, you're like, go, get into it, get into it. He's waiting too long. Well, he passed eight, seven, six, five, four. What's he going to do? I guess he has to pull up at this point. That's what he wanted the whole time. Hits the shot, calm as can be, and then just waves goodbye at the Oklahoma City Thunder. Damian Lillard was annoyed. He was annoyed with Russell Westbrook. He was annoyed with the media. He was annoyed with the Thunder. And instead of taking it out emotionally on them, instead of making backhanded comments to the media, instead of subtweeting them on the internet, he just balled out. He dropped 50, hit a game winner, fourth best shot of the decade, and waved goodbye. And he was entitled to because he sent them home. And he sent them home the right way by playing great basketball, and never letting all the talk get to his head. Someone tweeted out, I don't recall who it was, otherwise I'd absolutely give them credit, but I don't recall. Somebody tweeted out a very, very apt tweet that really summed up the situation, which is Russell Westbrook was playing against Damian Lillard, and Damian Lillard was playing against the Oklahoma City Thunder. One of those is a recipe for a potential personal victory. The other one is a recipe for a potential series victory. Well, quite frankly, Dame got both, but by virtue of the fact that he only went for the series victory, then he got it. Russell Westbrook played very badly, but we talked about it last week. He is in that class of players who truly guarantee you more success than you would possibly have without them, but then they continue to hold you back and hold you hostage when you're trying to take the next step forward. Now, another thing that excites me a lot, I was very excited last night by that shot. I mean, I really just thoroughly enjoyed it. It's great basketball. It was a great game. Damian Lillard's playing his best basketball. And we saw it in the All-Star game, actually, right, where he just showed off this limitless range. He's one of the few guys in the NBA whose abilities are really not impacted by range. I can't think of anyone besides Steph who falls into that category. That doesn't mean he has necessarily the most dangerous offensive skill set, although he'd be up there. But I don't trust Kevin Durant from 37 the same way I trust him from 25. Somehow, I kind of trust Lillard just as much from 37 as I do from 25. He's pushing himself into that Steph category. Not that he takes those kinds of shots all the time, but when he needs to and when he wants to, he absolutely can. That was exciting and it was fun. The other thing that's exciting and fun that's happening this week at the top of my list of exciting and fun things is Avengers Endgame. Now, Avengers Endgame is capping what's called Phase 4 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe started with Iron Man in 2008. Then it opened up into Hulk, Thor, Captain America, Guardians of the Galaxy, Spider-Man, Black Panther, you name it. 11 different franchises, 22 movies, 11 years. So I saw Iron Man when it came out in 2008. Then I saw the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk, for my birthday, the year it came out, 2009, which would have made me 11. Saw it about a month after it came out with a couple of my friends and my dad. And I enjoyed it. Now it is notoriously the odd man out of these movies because, well... Edward Norton played the Hulk, and he's no longer the actor in the franchise anymore. That's Mark Ruffalo. So Mark Ruffalo is the new Hulk, and he has been since that movie. 
different actor. It was before the MCU really blew up into what it is, what it is today. And so it doesn't feel as tied in. But it was a part of this incredible franchise. And this franchise has grown on its own. The characters have grown. The people enjoying it have grown. No matter how old you are, whether you're 80 or 11, 11 years is a long time. It's relative. It's much longer to an 11-year-old. It's their whole lifespan. And for me, it's half my life. But still, an 80-year-old can say 11 years old. 11, that's a long time. 11 years ago when they were seven, when they were 69, what were they doing? How different did your life look? Maybe the best smartphone out was a BlackBerry. Now we're on the iPhone 10, the iPhone X, right? Things change a lot. So phase four, realistically, is going to be beginning after Endgame. Phase three comes to a close, which is what we're in right now. But this first wave of 11 years really does feel like one big phase, even though when you think about the villains they've been facing and whatnot, it's split up into those three phases. And it's really exciting. I've been looking forward to this event unknowingly for 11 years and knowingly since last May when I saw Avengers Infinity War. If you haven't been able to enjoy these series of movies, please, please, for your own good, watch some of them. You don't have to watch all of them. There's 22 movies. That's a lot of movies to watch. Now, I've gone back and I've rewatched all of them in the past month or so because I think that's fun and I'm a real big fan of this franchise. But you don't have to do that. I will say if you are looking to watch some of the best ones, you have to watch the original Iron Man. You have to watch Captain America, the first Avenger. And then, because those ones are necessary to understand the foundations of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, from there on out, I would say you only have to watch the best movies if you want to. The first Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain America Civil War, Thor Ragnarok, Avengers Infinity War. Those are probably the four best movies in my book out of those 22. Well, technically 21, and then Endgame, which comes out tomorrow, will be the 22nd. So I'm going to figure it goes into that top five, considering it came out on Rotten Tomatoes with a 98% initial score. That's dropped 1% to 97 now that more critics have reviewed it, which is hardly relevant. 97 out of 100 on Rotten Tomatoes is exceptional. Critics are raving about it. They've said, imagine the best finish to the biggest cinematic franchise in the history of movies. And it blows that out of the water. So I'm kind of freaking out, as you can see. I'm kind of freaking out because I'm so excited and I've waited so long. And they've been able to keep the internet relatively spoiler-free for so long that I'm entirely unaware of what transpires in this movie. And I'm going to freak out when I see it tomorrow. It's going to be an emotional roller coaster for me, to say the least. And for a lot of people. It's going to be the most profitable movie in the history of the box office. It's projected to potentially break $1 billion in the opening weekend. But this is a sports show, not a movie show. But I did want to break down some of the NBA players as Avengers. I wanted to do a comparison. I think that can be fun, a little crossover event, right? These movies are crossovers in and of themselves, the Avengers movies. Why not cross over the NBA and the Avengers? So, Iron Man. Who is Iron Man in the NBA? Well, it's LeBron James, the OG, the original. The first movie, LeBron's kind of the old man of the NBA. 
who's still balling out. Now, Vince Carter is the old man of the NBA if you really want to get serious about it. But Vince Carter, as much as he's playing surprisingly well, isn't playing at an all-star level, an MVP level. LeBron still is. So LeBron James, that's Iron Man. Tony Stark, who is Iron Man in the movies, that's his, the real character is Tony Stark. And then when he dons the suit, he becomes Iron Man, played by Robert Downey Jr. He's got this through-the-roof IQ. He's a genius, one of the smartest people on earth. He continually advances his suits, progresses, even though you wonder what he can do next, he's always got something in his pocket, something up his sleeve. That's LeBron, right? The genius basketball player who's aging and somehow getting better. This is the only year he's really taken a step back, and statistically, he didn't. Plus, he was injured and played with nobody. So Iron Man is LeBron. LeBron is Iron Man. Captain America, Russell Westbrook. Now, a lot of people might be surprised to hear me say that, but I think the most important thing is to look at Captain America's legacy in the MCU right now. Captain America was a World War II super soldier. In the movies, they injected him, and comics, they injected him with a super soldier serum that made him an enhanced human. He's stronger, faster. Uh, he can think better. He, he's more reactive. He's got better reflexes, all that good stuff. But it also enhanced his emotional dispositions. He's more stubborn. He sticks to his moral compass in a stronger way. And all of that, because he was frozen for, 40, for, for 60 years, all of that ended up meaning that now he's a holdover from an old generation. And as this universe has progressed, he's starting to slowly realize he's either going to have to change or he won't fit in. He's stuck to his guns a fair amount, but he has made changes, and those have been very evident through these movies. That's Russell Westbrook. He's a holdover from a previous generation who sticks to his guns like nobody else. He's loyal, but he's defensive. He's confident, but he can rub people the wrong way. And he's starting to realize, after a series like he just had against the Blazers, maybe he's not starting to realize, but we all are, He's a holdover from a previous generation, and he doesn't really fit in today's basketball landscape. Iron Man, LeBron, Captain America, Russell Westbrook. Thor, James Harden. Thor has this hammer that only he can use. It's protected by a spell. Now, he technically has a different hammer now, but for most of the movies, he had his original hammer, which is a very complex Nordic name I can't pronounce. And only he can hold the hammer. Everyone thinks they can. Everyone tries it. Nobody can pick it up. Is that not James Harden's step back? Everyone thinks it's a travel or they can get away with it. But somehow he's the only guy out here doing it. He's the only one able to do it. That's his step back. His, his secret weapon is that step back that only he can figure out the right way to do it. Whether it's because everyone else is getting called for travels or everyone else believes it's a travel and won't do it. Harden does it and he makes it work. The Incredible Hulk is Nikola Jokic because nobody expected this little scientist, Bruce Banner, to be the Incredible Hulk. And then nobody expected this out-of-shape Nikola Jokic to become one of the best centers in the NBA. I don't know if anyone saw online his initial passport photo was floating around. I guess he's due up for a new one. If you look at the little kid in that photo, and someone told you when you first saw that photo, not knowing that it was Jokic, that he was going to be a perennial future all-star in the NBA you would laugh in their face. Comes out of nowhere. 
Doctor Strange is Kyrie Irving, not because of any similarities necessarily in their personality traits, but Doctor Strange is is a wizard, effectively, and believes in some crazy stuff, and believes in it for good reason, because it's true in the movies, but nobody else really wants to believe him, initially. Well, that's Kyrie Irving. Not that he's right, but he believes in some crazy stuff, and then at the end of the day, the guy gets the job done. Spider-Man is Steph Curry, who's the little guy who does more than people realize and doesn't get his due credit. Yeah, he's a superhero. Everyone knows that. But man, this guy, no matter how much you think he does, he's doing more. Doc Rivers is right. Steph Curry is the most underrated player in the NBA. Black Panther, Giannis Antetokounmpo, he's a newcomer who elevated his game when he was faced with a challenge and very quickly elevated his game to become the most feared player in the NBA. Well, that's what... That's what the Black Panther did. That's what T'Challa did in Wakanda. He was faced by a challenge. He didn't have a lot of time to go and rebuild. He had to turn around quickly, elevate his game, and take the throne. Well, that's what he did. Giannis did that. Captain Marvel is Damian Lillard. Bad ass. Stronger than you thought. And shows up when needed most. If those clutch shots don't exemplify that, I don't know what does. Captain Marvel isn't always there. Damian Lillard's not always at the center of the media attention, but when you need Damian Lillard, when you need Captain Marvel, they are there. Loki, Thor's evil brother, that's Joel Embiid. He's the chaotic evil of the NBA. You love him, but you hate him. He's kind of self-serving, but also wants to win. He's a chaotic evil. And then Thanos, the great enemy of Infinity War and Endgame, Kevin Durant. You might hate him. In fact, you probably hate him. But he won. For now. He won for now. And, as Thanos seemingly tells the Avengers in the Endgame trailer, they, we haven't really seen the movie and Marvel's known to use fake footage in the trailer, and I quote, You could not live with your own failure. Where did that bring you? Back to me. Is that not kind of... And Ed Harden's telling the main Avengers, which are Thor, Captain America, and Iron Man, the big three. He's kind of telling that all the time to Harden in the playoffs every year. LeBron, until the finals this year, he was telling LeBron every year in the finals, where did that bring you? Your failure, where did it bring you? Back to me. And he's always in Westbrook's head. So Thanos is Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant is Thanos. And then finally, a little shout out to Ant-Man Isaiah Thomas. That one's pretty self-explanatory. We're going to go to break here on Tabs Takes. You're listening to Tabs Takes on WERW. Stick with us through the break, and we'll be back with some, some interesting talk about the Yankees and the Flyers, and then additionally some NFL draft talk following that. Stick with us. Thanks for tuning in. And we're back. You're listening to Tab's Takes on WERW. Thank you for sticking with us through the break. I don't know if you've heard, but it's kind of the hot-button sports issue of the week. The New York Yankees and the Philadelphia Flyers have stopped playing Kate Smith's rendition of God Bless America. And some people are outraged, although no matter what you do, some people are going to be outraged. So that's really not important. Kate Smith was a 30s and 40s singer in the 1930s and 1940s. She was a singer who was most famous for her rendition of God Bless America. And the Yankees played it before every game. If I'm not mistaken, they started that tradition following 9-11. The Flyers, I don't know how long they've been playing it. But they both stopped, and the Flyers are actually covering up a statue of her outside of their stadium. 
She was most famous for that rendition of God Bless America, but she also had some other recordings that have recently come to light. And they're racist. Uh, they just are. That's the bottom line. Some people somehow want to def defend her and say that these lyrics are not racist. Will Kane was on first take saying they might be racist, but you have to understand the context of the time. Her niece, Susie Andron, I believe that's how you pronounce her last name, Susie Andron said to a CBS affiliate in Philadelphia, I believe, uh, I quote, Aunt Catherine was probably one of the kindest people I ever met. She was certainly anything but a prejudiced person. She loved everybody. Sorry, Miss Andron, you're wrong. You're, you're just dead wrong. Racism is not a feeling you get to decide on for your aunt. You don't get to say, oh, I love my aunt. She had a big heart. She made good cookies. How could she be prejudiced? I never heard her talk badly. How could she be prejudiced? That's not how it works. You can defend someone in that way when it's a discussion between two people who know the person well and that's all it is. But when there's recordings of them just being racist, you don't get to defend them from not being racist. If you expose yourself as a racist, that's what you are. I want to read you a few lines from one of her songs. I don't want to read you it, actually. It's a little uncomfortable. I hesitate to read it. But I want to read it to you because it's important to understand that when I say you've outed yourself as a racist, that's it. You'll understand when I read the lyrics. And if you know anybody who's defending her, you'll be shocked at how they could defend this. So the lyric is from the most infamous recording at this point that's causing the most distress, I'll say, the most uproar. Someone had to pick the cotton. Someone had to plant the corn. Someone had to slave and be able to sing. That's why darkies were born. That's racist. You are a racist if you write and record that. I don't care what you think about your aunt, Miss Andron. That's a horrible defense. She was kind. I don't care. If you think she was kind, she was a kind, racist woman. If you think she had a big heart, she was a racist woman with a big heart. It doesn't get rid of that. Those lyrics are just racist. That's the bottom line. She was racist because she wrote them and recorded them. And I don't care when she lived. This is the Will Cain thing. He said you have to take into account the time period. It was the 30s. It was the 40s. A lot of people were racist. Yeah, a lot of people were racist. You know what a lot of people being racist means? It means some people weren't. She had choices like all of us do all the time. And she made choices to write and record that. Now, hindsight is different. I accept that the time period was different and people were doing those things more frequently. It was more common. But we have rappers today who are big shots, big time rappers who regularly use homophobic lyrics in their songs, regularly, outright homophobic. And also they probably wouldn't deny it. They might say they don't hate gay people, but the bottom line is the lyrics are homophobic and they would probably admit to that. They'd say they don't intend it that way, but that's what they wrote, that's what they recorded, and they know that's what it means, so it's a choice, like I mentioned. It's a choice to record those things. We're not dumb. We know what these rappers are saying today, right? We know what they're saying. They say it, we hear it, and we either choose to ignore it or be offended by it. But the meaning doesn't change depending on how we react to it. It's homophobic today. It will be homophobic 10 years from now. It will be considered homophobic even more so 100 years from now. That's how the world works. The same goes for Kate Smith. It may have been less offensive back then, but it was just as racist back then as it is now. 
just as racist. It may have been more widely accepted. People might not have had the voices to oppose it. But the meaning has not changed. It was racist then. It's racist now. She knew what she was saying and she had a choice to say it. She made that choice. That's on her. That's fine. She's not even alive. I don't really feel that bad for a woman who's not alive to not have a statue anymore. She won't even know. <laughs> Realistically, like, right? What's the big deal? Her niece is offended that the statue got covered up? The woman we're talking about isn't even alive. She's certainly not complaining that her anthem's not being, her rendition of the God Bless America is not being played. She's certainly not complaining that her statue is being covered up. I understand that you can't change every time somebody is offended by something. Some things offend people. Some things are offensive. There's a difference. This is offensive. People get offended by everything. They don't always have good cause. This is a case with good cause. This is offensive. It's really simple. It's prejudiced. And it's racist. So good on the Yankees. Good on the Flyers. They stopped using her music. They're sports franchises. Sports franchises have three goals. The Yankees have these three goals, or they should at least. The Flyers have these three goals, or they should at least, as does every other franchise in this country. Three goals. Win, whether that be games or championships, ideally both. Profit. And make your damn fans happy. This certainly doesn't get in the way of the first two, so good on them for making their fans proud. And it's not that the first two are more important, but when this is not hindering any of your goals, there's no reason not to make that choice. Good on them. They made their fans proud to cheer for them as organizations. It's that simple. People who are opposed to change, people who are scared when someone has uproar and immediately you bend over backwards to accommodate them, I understand that. But what's the reason for continuing to play this song? If you change things, if you're afraid of or worried about, afraid of is not the right word, it's not a fear, but if you're concerned about the idea that every time somebody has an issue with something, it changes, I respect and not only respect, but partially agree with you. The difference is you should have a defense as to why that needs to continue, whatever it may be. Whatever practice is being threatened, you should have a defense as to why it's important that that continues. There is no defense, there is no reason to continue using this song. There's other renditions of the same song. There's other songs. There's no defense as to why Kate Smith's song has to be played outside of tradition, which is a bad defense. Tradition matters, don't get me wrong. But when real issues come into play, tradition is simply saying, I care and I've cared for a while. We've cared and we've cared for a while. That's all it means. And that's relevant in situations where there's not legitimate arguments against it on the other side, where it's really just a matter of feeling, but that's not what this is. This is a racist person who wrote racist songs. The Yankees and the Flyers do not want to represent her. They don't want to represent her to her to their fans. Their fans don't want to deal with what she stands for or stood for. She's passed now, so what she stood for. And I see no argument as to why that shouldn't be the case. So good on the Yankees, good on the Flyers, good on any other team that chooses to follow suit if they've been playing her music as well. It doesn't make her an evil person. From the 30s and 40s, there'd be a lot of evil people. 
but they did some evil things. This is a racist song. You shouldn't have to stand by that. There's no reason to. These franchises didn't. I commend them for that. We're going to take our last break of the show. When we get back, we're going to talk specifically about the New York Giants and the quarterbacks in this year's draft class. The NFL draft does start tomorrow. And I need to inform you of what mistakes at least three NFL teams are going to make this year because they make this mistake over and over again every year. Stick with me through the break, and I'll have that coming up for you in about three or four minutes here on WERW. You're listening to Tabs Takes. And we're back. You're listening to Tabs Takes on WERW. As I mentioned before the break, the NFL draft is tomorrow. And this is the issue I was talking about. When the NFL draft approaches, as always, people start talking up quarterbacks who have no business being talked up as day one approaches. They're not day one picks. They should never be day one picks, and yet they get talked into that category because people want quarterbacks to be good. Weak draft classes see quarterbacks get inflated because we're convinced that there must be a gem in every class. There must be good quarterbacks in every class. And therefore, if we can't find one, well, whoever's next up just gets moved up the list. Jared Goff had no business going first overall when he was drafted. Quite frankly, Carson Wentz didn't have any business going next. He had no business being the next quarterback off the board. He had any he had every every all business being right after Goff as far as the order they were picked, but neither of them should have gone as high as they did. But they were the best quarterbacks in the draft, so immediately they got bumped up to the top of the draft. The team that will probably not take a quarterback early, but should, is the New York Giants. Their management is the most incompetent in the NFL. That much is clear. They can't seem to do anything right. They can't let go of what they want to be true and really make decisions based off of what we all know to be true. They can fix everything about their roster. They probably won't because of their decision-making, but they could fix everything about their roster. And until they realize that Eli Manning is simply just bad at football at this point in his career, they won't win football games. If they don't take Dwayne Haskins... At number six, they can't take a quarterback with their first pick. Anyone else is a huge risk at six. A huge reach at six. Now, I'm assuming that Murray's off the board at that point. If it came down to those two, I'd probably take Kyler Murray. In fact, I would definitely take Kyler Murray. But given that I'm assuming he's off the board at one, that leaves Haskin as the only guy who's not a reach at six. There are three competent quarterbacks in this class. That's it. Competent. Kyler Murray... Dwayne Haskins, Will Greer. Kyler Murray's going to be a star. I'm convinced of that. Haskins has the talent, and he's not my top QB, but he's certainly justifiable to have as the best QB in this year's class. Right, if you rank them differently than me, if you think Murray is number two or three and you think Haskins is one, that's fine. That's respectable. I personally don't have him there. I like Greer a lot. I've loved Greer for about three years now. He's not a top 10 selection, though, so he's still a reach at, at, at six. He's a reach at 17, actually, which is the Giants' next pick. So unless he slides to their third pick at 37, the Giants are realistically going to have to pass on quarterbacks if they want to draft intelligently, if they don't get Haskins at six, which would be intelligent to begin with. For any other team that's in need of a quarterback, if you want to take a gamble, take Tyree Jackson, quarterback from Buffalo. I don't think he'll pan out necessarily. I was kind of 50-50 on him, then his ball performance really rubbed me the wrong way. He's 6'7", 250 pounds, he's mobile, he's got a strong arm. Everyone has a strong arm, apparently. That's what scouting reports say. This kid has a really strong arm. He can throw on a rope. He can throw deep. It does not matter. There's arm strength. That is clear. 
but he's a great gamble for a franchise that's picking later, right? He's inconsistent and he struggles with decision making and accuracy. But if you believe in his raw talent and you're either desperate, there are two circumstances I can see him fitting a desperate team or a team that can afford to potentially waste a pick. A team that's not necessarily in Super Bowl contention, not that bad either. They're just trying to keep getting better. And you can get him late. You can waste that pick. Not that you want to, but you could afford that. Yeah, go ahead and take him. He's a good gamble. Taking any other quarterback is simply falling into the age-old trap of the NFL, which is if he looks like a quarterback, then he must be a quarterback. If he looks like a good quarterback, he must be a good quarterback. They never ask the right question. Does he play like a good quarterback? You can talk yourself all day into Drew Locke. You can talk yourself all day into Daniel Jones. You can talk yourself all day into Ryan Finley. You can talk yourself into mediocrity and a waste of a pick, as so many teams do every year, as so many teams will this year. But the bottom line is I don't care what you look like. I care how you play. And there is a clear drop-off in my eyes when you take into account potential, skill set, and prior success between that upper echelon where I have Kyler Murray, Dwayne Haskins, and Will Greer, then you get Drew Locke. Then you take an even bigger step from between Greer and Locke. You take a bigger step from Locke to Daniel Jones. Then you take an even bigger step to Ryan Finley. Teams are going to make mistakes as always. There can be hidden gems, but teams are convinced they found hidden gems. You get lucky when you find a hidden gem in the draft. I truly believe that. Drafting is such a difficult skill. It's hardly a skill. Talent evaluation is incredibly difficult. And unless you're regularly finding hidden gems, then you might just be getting lucky. And at that point, don't risk it on a guy who's probably not that good, who has shown no reason to believe he is that good. Don't make that mistake. But plenty of teams will. We'll have to wait and see tomorrow. Thank you for listening to Tab's Takes on WERW. I'm your host, Ryan Tab. I appreciate you tuning in. I believe next week is my last episode. I'll have a sign-off for you then. Until then, enjoy the NBA playoffs, enjoy the draft, and enjoy the rest of your day.